there are hundreds and hundreds of world records. These records include many different activities, sports, competitions, and definitely are held by a wide variety of people. But one world record that I have a hard time getting my mind around is the Guinness Book of World Record for the world's largest jigsaw puzzle. Now, this is not the seven-piece puzzle that your toddler begs you to put together every morning or the 250-piece, 500-piece, or maybe even 1,000-piece puzzle that you thought might be a good idea for family bonding during a snowstorm. No, this Guinness Book of World Record is 551,232 pieces. Yes, that's more than half a million pieces that when put together, as you can see here on the screen, makes up 48 by 76 feet and was put together by 1,600 students at a stadium in Vietnam. Now, puzzles are fascinating or depending on your personality type, maybe a better word would be frustrating. Because each piece is necessary to join together in order to put together the picture that the creator of the puzzle wanted us to see. Without certain pieces of the puzzle, we miss the point that the creator wanted those in your home to see when the puzzle is finally complete. Now, putting a puzzle together is one thing even a 500,000-piece puzzle. But piecing together the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament together, to see the overarching themes that God has for us is quite another. And last week, we started a new series called From Old to New to You, where Pastor Nick traced the storyline of promises and covenants that God gives us in his word. And as he traced these covenants for us, the pinnacle or apex promise that he shared with us was where God told his people, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And it's as if that was part one of the sermon, and today is part two, where we will look at an outworking of how God completes that promise for his people. And we're going to look at two words throughout the storyline of the Bible, and they are temple and priest. So let's start with the word temple. A temple in the Bible could be defined as a location where people meet with God. Now when we hear the word temple, what usually pops in our mind is a large building with extravagant architecture where there's priests and animals that are going to be sacrificed and people who are hoping to deal with their sins before God. And that would be a correct thing to pop into your mind. But before we get to that, let's start where the Bible starts with the term temple, and let's start in the Garden of Eden. For if a temple is a location where people meet with God, then the Garden of Eden depicts the very first temple. God created the world, and he made people in his own image. And in the first two chapters of the Bible, God is described as dwelling with his people, talking with his people, and just being with them. Now let's think about this for a second. Adam and Eve didn't need to write letters to God. They didn't need to send God an email. They didn't need to catch him on the phone. And they didn't even need to FaceTime God. Adam and Eve in this first temple had complete communion 
with their creator, the God of the universe. But as immaculate and pure as the first two chapters of the Bible are, so far in the other direction do we get in chapter three when sin enters into the world. Things do not stay this way for long because in Genesis three, Adam and Eve choose to put their will above God's. Follow along with me in Genesis chapter three, starting in verse six. These verses will all be up here on the screen. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Let's focus on that phrase here at the end here. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is the complete opposite of the definition of a temple. A temple is where people come to meet with God. This was the reality for Adam and Eve. But because they chose to sin, now they were hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord. Just three chapters into the Bible, we are introduced to the biggest problem in human history. This was the biggest problem for Adam and Eve, and it's the biggest problem for us today. And it is tempting that we might want to ignore, avoid, or even cut sin out of the Bible because we don't want to deal with it. This is what one of our first presidents, Thomas Jefferson, did. When he came to the Bible, he didn't agree with what it said. So he cut certain things out of it, formed it, and made what was known as the Jefferson Bible. But when we approach the Holy Scriptures, we don't get to decide what is in them and what is out. But we must accept God's revealed word as it is because God is both the puzzle maker and the, the puzzle completer. And every piece is intentionally placed in God's puzzle. So this is where we come today to our second word, priest. Due to sin entering into the world, now we needed someone, people needed someone to stand in between us and God. As we saw earlier, Adam and Eve, they hid from God when sin entered into the world. And now because God is pure and holy and guiltless, people who have sinned, which is all, need someone to stand in between us and God. One definition of a priest could be that in Old Testament Israel, the priest represented the people before God and God before the people. One theologian helps us understand that in the Mosaic Covenant, the people brought animal sacrifices to the priest to deal with their sins. Now, it's very important as we, as we piece this all together, the puzzle piece of priest only makes sense if we have the puzzle piece of sin. Because without sin, there would be no need of the priest. But because sin entered in the world, God provided for his people and he provided priests. 
In the Garden of Eden, there was true communion with God, but now because of sin, someone had to step in. Someone had to be the mediator. Someone had to go between us and God. We see this explained, the idea of priests in Exodus chapter 40. And starting in verse 9, priests are explained where it says, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle, and we're going to get to that word in a moment, the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it in all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you have anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. So in Exodus chapter 40, when we see the idea of priests being instituted by God, we are reminded not to remember only the sinfulness of people, for that's the problem, the biggest problem of human history, but we're reminded the reason that priests were needed is because of the pure and holy character of God. Because God is pure, people could no longer stand in his sight. But before we dive deeper, into this idea of priests, let's look at that first word that we saw there in the first verse here that we looked at. The word tabernacle came up. And as the storyline of the Bible continues, so does the continuation of temple, and in this sense, it's tabernacle. For before King Solomon built the temple of God, the one that pops in your mind when we hear the word temple, First, God's people, they were dwelling and they were a mobile people, right? The Old Testament is a story where God would lead his people from location to location. And during this time, God met with his people, not in a permanent, tabern in a per permanent temple, but it was in a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7 explains, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now let's take a quick break because this is a lot of information. And let's think about what this verse in Exodus 33 says. For the people of Israel who were following God from location to location. If they wanted to meet with God, what did they need to do? It says they, meet, they needed to leave outside the camp and they needed to go out to the tabernacle. They needed to go to the tent of meeting. Who were they meeting with? They were meeting with God. And before this was an extravagant structure that was permanent, which we'll get to in a moment, this was literally a tent. Today's terminology, it was about 15 feet wide, 
15 feet high and 45 feet long. We could fit the tabernacle right here in front of us. And this is where the people would go to meet with the God of the universe. But although this doesn't seem big and this doesn't seem extravagant, let's not miss the point of what happened in that tabernacle. God's glory was present in that tent. Let's look in Exodus chapter 40. Listen to the unique and intentional words that Moses uses in Exodus chapter 40. It says, Then the clouds covered the tent of meeting. And the, this is, again, let's not geek out, but like this is a small tent. 15 feet by 15 feet by 45 feet. And this is what's happening in there. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Remember our original definition of temple, where people would meet with God? Well, that was happening for the Israelites in this tent because God's people were on the move. But eventually, as we turn the pages of the Bible, and this is why it's so important just to read through the Bible, even if it takes longer than a year, to continually get a process of reading through the Bible. Because as we turn the pages of the Bible, we're given a few more puzzle pieces that help us connect the storyline of the Bible together. And eventually, God provided for the Israelites not a tent, but eventually he provided a permanent temple. This was an immaculate building. The architecture was amazing. It was built by King Solomon, designed by his father, David. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but hopefully you have a, Bible, a study Bible that can maybe show you a drawing of what it would have looked like and explain what was happening in that building. But as huge and as awesome as this building was, Let's not miss the point. The point was never the building. The point was that people could go here, meet with God, and their sins could be dealt with. Now, people could not go into the holy places. The only people who could go into the holy places were the priests and the worship leaders. And beyond the holy places, many of us are familiar with the term the holy of holies, this is where God's presence dwelled. Only the high priest could go in there. And this wasn't an often occurrence. This only happened once a year. And when the high priest would go in to sacrifice for the people, it was to show that there had to be a payment for the sin that entered into the world. Let's look at the language used in 1 Kings chapter 8. Similar to the language that was used for tabernacle, but now being used for temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, 
a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now this temple in Jerusalem, this was a sight. And it wasn't only a sight, it was very important because the people needed to meet with God. They needed to have their sins dealt with. But let's remember, this was no Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, could dwell with God in the tabernacle and in the temple, there had to be a priest. There had to be a go-between. There had to be someone standing between people and a holy God. And as the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament looks back at the Old Testament and reminds us in Hebrews 10, chapter 3, that these sacrifices are a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And as the writer of Hebrews alludes to, sin continues and the needs for sacrifices is unending. Until as we continue to turn the pages of the Bible, eventually we get to the New Testament, eventually we get to the Gospels, and eventually we get to the puzzle pieces of Jesus, because we realize as we go through the storyline of the Bible, that sin has spread to everyone, has affected everything except for one person, Jesus Christ. Now the image that the gospel writer John gives us of Jesus in the very beginning of his gospel, and this is so important, is that Jesus is a true and better tabernacle and a true and better temple. Now, I just want to take a minute to pause here because this, this takes a little mental strength as we connect the dots. I know some of the kids in this room, maybe you do, you know, you connect the dots and you try to draw a picture, right? What we're doing right now is we're jumping from the Old Testament and we're seeing how it connects to the New Testament. And so what we see here in John chapter 1 is John explains that Jesus is the new tabernacle, Look with me at John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. The gospel writer says, And the word, speaking of Jesus, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two quick observations we want to make of this verse. First, we read this and we see that Jesus became flesh and he dwelled among us. And we read this and we say, yes, that makes sense. Jesus came down to earth. But for the first century Christians who were reading this in the original language, what they were reading would sound something like this. But Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word dwelt that we see in our English language here, in the original language meant tabernacled. That Jesus on earth was the meeting place between people and God. But the second observation that, to be honest, I never saw before till I was sitting on my back deck last night is the emphasis of glory in this verse, John 1.14. John says that Jesus came and he was tabernacling among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. 
What did we see in Exodus in the tabernacle? God's glory was present. What did we see in 1 Kings in the temple? God's glory was present. And what do we see in Jesus Christ? God's glory is present. He truly is the Son of God. But John doesn't stop there in chapter 2. He doesn't say that Jesus is like the true tabernacle. He also explains that Jesus claims to be the temple. John 2 verse 17 says this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Chapter one, Jesus is described as the tabernacle. John chapter two, Jesus claims to be the temple. And one Bible study tactic that we see here is if you look down in your Bible or look up here on the screen, verse 21 is not in quotes. This is something we call a narrator's comment. The writer of the Gospel, John, is helping us understand something. He's helping us understand that when Jesus is making these claims, he's actually making them about himself, about his own body. And it's also amazing in verse 23, he's showing us that the disciples were doing the same thing that we're doing here this morning. Look down with me at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken to them. The disciples were taking the Old Testament scriptures, some of the same ones that we looked at here today, right? Because they had accessible to them the same ones we have accessible to us, Exodus and 1 Kings. And they were taking these scriptures and they were figuring out how they connected to the words of Jesus. And this is so crucial. We begin to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. We begin to see how if our definition of temple continues, that it's a location where people meet with God, that in Jesus, the temple was no longer a building or a tent or a location, but in Jesus, the temple of God is a person and his name is Jesus. Now people have access to God through a person and his name is Jesus. But don't wait, the good news gets better than this. In the Old Testament, an Israelite could show up to the tabernacle. Just imagine if you were an Old Testament Israelite. You show up at the tabernacle or you show up at the temple and if there is no priest there, you're out of luck. You could hope to meet with God, you could want to meet with God, but if there was no priest there, there was no go-between between you and the creator of the universe, God Almighty. But the Bible describes Jesus not only as the true tabernacle, not only as the true temple, but also as the true mediator between people and God. 
One theologian, Wayne Grudem, helps us understand that priests represent people in coming before God's presence. Christ is the final prophet, king, and priest who fulfills all three functions in the final way. The thing we often forget when we read the Old Testament is there were priests that were necessary. But these priests were human beings like you and I. Because of sin, they, just like us, they lived, they breathed, and eventually they died. So priests had to be replaced as they died. So there would be a priest, and he would live, and he would serve for several years, but eventually he would die. And there would be a priest, and he would live, and he would serve for several years, and then he would die. But in Christ Jesus, the ultimate mediator, after he died on a cross to pay for the punishment of our sins, was buried and God raised him from the dead, he is alive forevermore. And he never needs to be replaced as the ultimate mediator between us and God. Look with me quickly at 1 Timothy chapter 2. This was written by the Apostle Paul. This is someone who knew the Old Testament very well. That before he met Jesus, he was twisting the Old Testament scriptures, trying to figure out how, they, how Jesus fit in there. But once his eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel, and Jesus became clear to him, he wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now let's, let's take a moment and just think about this verse for a minute. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. If there's ever a verse that we should think about and meditate on and memorize, it would be these two verses. As we go throughout our lives, as we strive to do what God calls us to do, we realize so often we put our will above God's will and we choose to sin. So often among our families, so often among our friends, so often in our quiet times, we choose to elevate our will over God's will. The problem is you can't fix, you can't fix this problem on your own, but there is a mediator and his name is Jesus. Now, when we go a little broader than ourselves and we think about people in our life, I think all of us could think about some people in our life who we know and who we love, who we wish were following the Lord, who maybe even today are making decisions where they're choosing to sin rather than to do what God would call them to do. I don't know about you, but I have this impulse when I think of these people, I want to fix the situation. How, what, how can I help? What can I do? That weight builds on our shoulders. But I want to remind you this morning, there's only one person who can go between them and God. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's the mediator, Jesus Christ. Then we go even a step further from ourselves to the people we love, and we look at our culture. And it doesn't take too much more than driving down 224 and looking at the billboards that we see to realize that sin has infiltrated the culture that we live in. And we look around and sometimes feelings of frustration come, sometimes feelings of abandonment. What am I supposed to do? 
but I'm reminded in this verse today that I am not the savior of the culture. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. And as verse 6 says, it says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If you find yourself here this morning, or maybe you're watching on the live stream, and you feel like you have sinned too much, you feel like if God knew what you have done, how could he love you? How could he forgive you? Maybe it's time we circle the word all in the Bible, or we underline it in the notes that we're taking, that there is no one outside the reach of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. But this good news of temple and tabernacle and priest, it continues as God gives us more puzzle pieces in the Bible. It doesn't stop there. For as I mentioned, Jesus died on a cross to pay for the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He was buried in the ground for three days, and then God raised him up. That's why we celebrate Easter. Shortly after that, the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts explain that Jesus ascended up into heaven. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit down. It's called the helper or the comforter. And when he sent his spirit down to earth, and we're going to hear more about this in next week's sermon, but when he sent his spirit down to earth, the New Testament is clear that for those who trust Christ to forgive them from their sins, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And what the New Testament explains in 1 Corinthians is that the church becomes a temple for God. When Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down to earth, the church becomes a temple for God. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The writer Paul, the same person who wrote the previous section, said, Do you not know and that you is plural. He's not speaking to one person. He's speaking to the church collectively. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. friends in this room who are trusting Jesus to forgive us from our sins, if your life seems ordinary, if your life seems mundane, I want to remind you that the Bible has told us that God has chose to send his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. We are the temple of God, and there is nothing ordinary about that. And as we continue this theme, we can be grateful that Jesus is the true temple, that Jesus is the true high priest, and that Jesus now mediates for his church, and he has sent his spirit to dwell within us. Now as we piece this puzzle together and we get a clearer picture of how temple and priesthood go throughout the Bible— I want to conclude with two closing thoughts for us. Where does it leave us as the people of Old North Church? First, the first place I think this leaves us, and I hope that we as a people can continue to grow in, is a sense of thankfulness that Jesus is our great high priest. 
As we mentioned earlier in this sermon, that the greatest problem in this world is not a lack of money, it's not mixed security, and it's not worldly anxieties that although they're real, right, they hurt. The greatest problem in the world is sin, and the greatest news in the world is that Jesus Christ came in the world to conquer our sin. And I want to read for us a passage in Hebrews chapter 4. We could preach 10 sermons on these short verses, but I'm not even going to explain them. Let's let the word of God wash over us this morning and a sense of thankfulness that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. This is God's word in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. May we be thankful. But the second and last place where I want to end us this morning is because Jesus is the true and better temple and because Jesus is the true and better high priest, we can have a sense of longing and anticipation of being with him in heaven. Remember Eden, before sin entered the world, man and woman were with God. Sin was not a barrier. And all the pages of the Bible explain the story of how God would send Jesus to pay for our sins. And then the last pages of the Bible, the last few pages, explain eternity. And the writer John of Revelation explains the term temple very clearly here in Revelation chapter 21. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, speaking of heaven, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, life, as God calls us to live, can be very difficult at times. The sin that we find ourselves in and those who we love start entangling their lives in is truly devastating. And I don't know if we've all noticed, but this battle that the New Testament talks about against the devil is raging. But because of the work of Jesus and because of the gospel that God explains starting in Genesis and going the whole way to Revelation, we can long and we can anticipate being with God in a true and better Eden where we can dwell with God, not only for a short amount of time, but forever. Praise God for sending his son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and pray with me? God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And we thank you for being a God, as Pastor Nick taught us last week, who makes promises and keeps promises. And Father, as we trace this storyline through the Bible, we thank you that you have met with your people for generations, and we thank you for sending Jesus so that we can have eternity forever with you. Father, would you make your words clear to us 
And Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.